The very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. Our differences worldwide would vanish if we were facing an alien threat from outside this world. And yet, I ask you, is not an alien force already among us? Exopolitics, paranormal phenomena, and deep analysis of current world events from somewhere in the desert between Area 51 and Roswell, blasting across the planet, the Manticore Network proudly presents Veritas, because the truth will set you free. Headline edition, July 8, 1947. The Army Air Forces has announced that a flying disc has been found and is now in the possession of the Army. I think it's time to open the books on the question of government investigations of UFOs. Uh, we ought to do it really because it's right. We ought to do it because the American people, quite frankly, can handle the truth. And we ought to do it because it's the law. Be skeptical. Do be as skeptical as you want, but by all, don't close your mind. Greetings to everyone around the world, and a warm welcome to another edition of the Veritas Show, where we bring you disclosure, one guest at a time. I'm your host, Mel Fabregas, and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. This is episode number 32. Tonight, we're departing from our core topic. However, when you ponder, and as Cliff High from the WebBot Project says, if you don't see the UFO topic and other conspiracies linked together, you're not seeing the big picture. A few years ago, I received an anonymous package. I believe I still have it somewhere in my vault. I opened it, and in it was a CD. The CD had a title, The Creature from Jekyll Island. I thought it was some kind of a joke, or perhaps science fiction. All of a sudden, the voice of this wise and eloquent man started explaining everything about the Federal Reserve. I was astounded with what I heard. In all my college years, never did a business professor ever explain the real truth about the Federal Reserve. Naturally, after starting this show, I wrote down a list of the people I really wanted to interview so that I could get more questions answered. Many of these you have already heard on the show. However, tonight is one I was looking forward to interview even before Veritas was born. G. Edward Griffin, author of The Creature from Jekyll Island, a second look at the Federal Reserve, is tonight's special guest. 
Although tonight's show pertains to the Federal Reserve, its tentacles reach many countries, thus making it relevant to all of you around the world. G. Edward Griffin will be with us shortly. I want to wish all my friends from the exopolitics movement, including Paula Harris, Stephen Bassett, Dr. Michael Sala, Nick Pope, Alfred Weber, Dr. Stephen Greer, Sergeant Major Robert Dean, and others, a safe and productive trip to Barcelona, Spain, where they're all speaking at the Barcelona Exopolitics Summit, subtitled, A New Paradigm for a World in Crisis, taking place on July 25th and 26th. They are expecting about 1,000 people. Our very best wishes to you and hello to all my friends from Europe, including Marisol and Jose Antonio Roldan from the very popular Spanish show, Años Luz. Next week's special guest is French journalist Bernard Tuanel, The Cometa Report. The very test show is syndicated by the following affiliates, K-Rock's Zero Point Radio, the Black Vault Radio Network, and the Paranormal Radio Network. UPRN 105.8 FM, New Orleans. If you need to get in touch with me, send an email to mel, that's M-E-L, at veritasshow.com or head onto our website and click on the contact button. Don't forget to stop by the Manticore Forum where you can send questions to our future guests and discuss many topics with members around the world. Also, stop by the chat room on Friday and Saturday evenings where you can discuss this week's show. Also, I have some news for you. Some of you have emailed saying that ever since we started our subscription service, you have not been able to listen. I understand. However, we have to pay the bills. For that reason, I have introduced a free subscription service for those of you who can put some value to Veritas. If you go to the website, veritasshow.com, find the link that says free subscription. Read it. And mainly what I'm looking for is people who can transcribe shows. If you can transcribe a show, I will give you a three-month membership. And also people who can upload shows to YouTube. So head on to the website, click on free subscription, read it, and send me an email if you would like to participate, and you'll get a three-month subscription for each show that you transcribe. And here's a preview of our upcoming Veritas show, with French journalist Bernard Toinel, who first made public the Cometa report. I want to ask you about the alleged UN meeting, secret meeting that took place just a few years ago. And an unidentified but highly qualified and reliable source said that the secret meeting was attended by the US Air Force, the National Guard, the Vatican, representatives from 27 countries, and three US senators. Why don't you tell us what supposedly happened there was, uh, of course, there, there was a real uh, meeting on that subject in, uh, in the late 70s. Uh, and it's well known, there was Jack Valley and Sophie, it was confirmed by my sources. I, I think the conclusion that we can come up with uh, from this alleged UN meeting yeah. is that it was a black eye to the UFO research community. It could be a, a, an action from intelligence. That's 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 possible. Uh, we cannot exclude anything. And I think just to let the the audience know, uh, Bernard, you're one of. I think you have the record of uh, of journalists who has flown more fighter jets uh, in the world. Am I right? I flew uh, around uh, between thirty five and forty different types of aircraft uh, worldwide, including the Russians, including F uh, fifteen. 
F-18, uh, MiG-29, uh, Su-24, Su-27, etc., etc. And not only is this more or less the same as Milton Torres here, but it's it's more or less the same as to many other pilots who have referred to the same thing. They, they When they try to engage, their systems are shut down. Yeah. Once they start yeah. turning on their, their weapon systems. Yes, absolutely. There is a, and there is also, uh, uh, for some people, and uh, General Jeffrey told me a, uh, a little bit about that. Uh, when he, he, he came back, and that's nobody, nobody uh, talked about that. He forgot. So there was a time, a time frame during the, 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 the from the, the, the event of the dogfight, I would say, and uh, the landing, he has what he called the missing time. I, I, I've interviewed lots of great people in the last almost six months, but I know that some of the best stories are never reported. Yeah. A lot of people are contacting me that they want to share their story, and I'm still confirming their credentials and so on. In the U.S., it seems to be the case that those who practice their art, quote-unquote art, of disinformation, practice it a lot on the UFO community. For example, the UN secret meeting, the alleged UFO secret meeting, uh -huh. that was an example of a disinformation uh, ploy, don't you think? Uh, I would say like Roswell. <laughs> oh, you believe that Roswell was disinformation? Uh, yeah, because I think you are talking too much about that, and we are not talking about this very interesting subject. Uh -huh. <laughs> For me, it's, uh, it's, it's obvious. That's its uh, entertainment uh, uh, target. Uh, look, look to this place. Look to this direction. Look at that direction, and and uh, <laughs> you don't look on the other side. And the most interesting things are uh, happening on the other side. You know what I mean? That's exactly. You know, it's like uh, the screen uh, of fog. I was describing. The smoke screen. Yeah, fog screen. My conclusion: is every country is chasing the Holy Grail. And the Holy Grail is a UFO phenomena uh, application, not explanation. They want to get the technology, the propulsion. You call what you want. They want to get the propulsion system. They want to get that. Uh, they want to understand. They want to apply. And of course, uh, if they can... Uh, uh, provide uh, instead of having a very expensive S-22 Raptor or whatever, instead of that having a flying saucer or flying UFO uh, with all the the, the, the the characteristics, the performances we, we, we saw from the, all the sightings made by pilots all over the world. But that's a dream machine for everybody. What, what do you mean? I, I, is there such a thing as somebody smarter than us? <laughs> I'm just kidding. That's that's the way. If, if, if we cannot imagine, nobody else can. That's the mentality that a lot of these people have. You put the finger on everything regarding the aspect of understanding the UFO phenomena. You put the finger right on the point. We have to be prepared to be downgraded. And no one politician, no one people on this planet, can accept that.
And now, get ready to go deeper into the Federal Reserve System. The identities of who truly owns the central banks is one of the world's best-kept secrets. The United States Treasury Department and the United States Congress have no oversight or due diligence when it comes to the Federal Reserve. It functions with complete sovereignty and autonomy, and even outside the executive branch of government. In fact, the United States President and all the world presidents answer to this unseen hand. The Federal Reserve also has a twin sister in Great Britain, the Bank of England. It has unlimited powers to print, manufacture, and disperse world currency to the benefit or detriment of nations' ability to purchase the central bank's commodity, which is buying and selling money. The setting of interest rates and terms is completely left to their discretion. If you want to continue believing what you're told, stop listening now. If you want to know who really controls the world and all aspects of our lives, don't go anywhere. This is Mel Fabregas, and you're listening to The Veritas Show. Edward Griffin is a writer and documentary film producer with many successful titles to his credit. Listed in Who's Who in America, he is well known because of his talent for researching difficult topics and presenting them in clear terms that all can understand. He has dealt with such diverse subjects as archaeology and ancient earth history, the Federal Reserve System and international banking, terrorism, internal subversion, the history of taxation, U.S. foreign policy, the science and politics of cancer therapy, the Supreme Court, and the United Nations. Mr. Griffin is a graduate of the University of Michigan, where he majored in speech and communications. He has served on the board of directors of the National Health Federation and the International Association of Cancer Victors and Friends, and is founder and president of the Cancer Cure Foundation. He is also the founder and president of Freedom Force International. Mr. Griffin is a recipient of the coveted Telly Award for Excellence in Television Production and contributing editor of the New American Magazine, the creator of the Reality Zone Audio Archives, and is president of American Media, a publishing and video production company in Southern California. Hello, Mr. Griffin, and welcome to The Veritas Show. How are you? I'm very well, thank you, Mel. Thanks for inviting me. My pleasure. It's a true honor and pleasure having you on, sir. Ever since I read your book, The Creature from Jekyll Island, a few years ago, it, it caused real transformation in me. And after that, I started questioning more and more September the 11th, the petrodollar, the never-ending wars, how the Fed may have been a reason why Kennedy was killed, and so much more. But, you know, Mr. Griffin, when I sent you the invitation for you to appear on the show, I had a vision. I saw myself in a round table with you, Congressman Ron Paul, Judge Andrew Napolitano, and the late Aaron Russo discussing how to fix this country. I only wish that were true. Yeah, that would be quite a group, I would say. Why don't you give us a background of yourself and tell us how you became involved in researching the Federal Reserve? 
Okay. Well, that's kind of a long, uh, boring story. I'll try and make it a short, boring story, Amel. Uh, it's like so many things in our lives. Uh, it, it didn't happen all at once. It evolved. Uh, years ago, I decided I wanted to, to uh, produce a documentary film on inflation. And so I started to do research on that. And, of course, any research on inflation takes you directly to the Federal Reserve System because that's the engine of inflation. And I started to acquire a lot of uh, research materials, books and papers and interviews and so forth, and put them all in a box and put the box in the back of my closet and abandoned the project because I got involved in some other things. I never did produce that documentary. But some years later, I was invited to talk before a group out here in California, and they wanted me to talk on taxes. And I said, I don't know anything about taxes, really, except that they're too high and uh, I don't like them. So right. I, could, I could talk about um, a hidden tax called inflation, if you want me to. Well, they thought that was fine, so I did. Gave the talk, uh, spent a little time preparing it based on that box of research. And it was so well-received, Mel. People were so enthusiastic about it. They said, you know, we've never heard this stuff before. Why don't you put this on the road? So I was encouraged by that. I went back and did a little more work on the talk. I did put it on the road. And, uh, in fact, it evolved quickly into a seminar, uh, an all-day seminar, uh, called A Crash Course on Money. And uh, that finally led to the point where people uh, thought, because I knew about the Federal Reserve, they thought I knew about investments and money. And uh, they were asking me, you know, what to do with their money? I've got an apartment. Should I sell it? Should I go out of debt, get into debt, and so forth? And to wrap this up, I came to the conclusion that I really didn't know enough about the real market out there, the real world of money. So I stopped giving the seminar, Mel, and I enrolled in um, what they call the College of Financial Planning in Denver, Colorado. And it was a couple of years of study. I got my CFP designation, that Certified Financial Planner. Sure. And not because I wanted to do financial planning, because I didn't, but I just wanted to know more about the real world out there of money markets and so forth. And then after that was done, I decided to get serious about the topic, and I began a seven-year research project that finally led to the creation of the book. So it's a long, long, uh, convoluted story. And, but each, each step along that journey uh, strengthened my resolve that this was such an important topic that I, I just had to, I had to do something with it. You know, Mr. Griffin, this show is heard by people in over 132 countries, and a lot of them hear the words Federal Reserve, but they really don't know. So I hope that we can educate a lot of those who, who are starting to hear this more and more. And as I said to somebody who spoke to me yesterday, um, your book seems to be more timely as every year goes by. Well, unfortunately, that's true, yes, because we're dealing with uh, not just the monetary system, but we're dealing with what I proposed in my book was a corruption of what the monetary system should be. I, I, I looked at it as, as a huge mistake. I looked at it as a, a repeat of history, which has always uh, resulted in disaster in the past. And so when you take that point of view, you cannot help but project into the future. And uh, a lot of my... Uh, uh, the import of what I was trying to say in the book was that, look, uh, everybody, if we don't turn this trend around, we're going to wind up the same way all other nations have ended up who have followed this course of uh, debauching their currency, creating money out of nothing, uh, living on debt instead of production and all of those things. I honestly feel as if I'm talking to, Ron, to with Ron Paul. Well, uh, certainly Ron Paul and I see eye to eye on the uh, basic uh, principles of the monetary system, no question. I read some headlines, Mr. Griffin, in the last couple of days that read, quote, the Federal Reserve 
The counterfeiters who inflate our money supply and whose easy money policies have given us over 80 years of depressions, bubbles, and booms is starting to sweat, unquote. Now, Congressman Ron Paul has sponsored the Audit the Fed bill, and as of today, he has collected 250 signatures from co-sponsors. However, I just heard the Senate has blocked it. Those who are blocking it, isn't it proof that we have the best politicians that money can buy? I think that's certainly uh, conclusive evidence. Uh, Who would want to block any bill to audit the Fed? As a matter of fact, even though I support that bill, I'm not as enthusiastic about it as a lot of people because I don't think it's going to solve anything. Uh, In fact, I said that in my book. I said, we don't need to audit the Fed. We need to abolish the Fed. Abolish it, yes. Yes. And and I know that if there was an honest audit, the the most beneficial thing that would come out of it, of course, today, is we would find out who got all this money, these trillions of dollars they recently created, who got it and what the conditions were. Uh, I think that's something they don't want to have publicly disclosed. I think that even... Even with an audit of the Fed taking place, they'd find ways to conceal that information or find ways with executive orders to say, no, you don't have to disclose that information and so forth. Uh, But underlying it all, I felt that auditing the Fed would not disclose too much that we didn't already know. Uh, We think we should abolish the Fed because of what we already know about it. We know that it's creating money out of nothing. We know it's pushing the the value of the American dollar down, down, and down. We know it's redistributing the wealth from the middle class to those in the politically favored class. We know all of those things without an audit. And I, I have felt that an audit would simply give the politicians a chance to say, look, we're doing something. You see, we voted for an audit the Fed bill. See how good we are? When in reality, Mm -hmm. that doesn't change anything because the Fed would just continue to go on and on and on, which is frankly why I think they got so much support in the Congress is because it didn't mean anything. It was a way for these politicians to posture, say, look, I'm really, you know, I'm on your side, but I'm not going to do anything. So even though I do support the bill because I think that it it uh, focuses attention on the Fed and puts it in the proper negative light in the public eye, uh, I, I don't think that it's a solution to the problem. So it's almost as the Warren Commission or the 9-11 Commission providing a report to pacify the masses when in reality we know what, you know, we That's think right. we know what happened. Yeah, any committee appointed by Congress or the Senate to audit the Fed or uh, examine the Fed would undoubtedly, in my view, uh, be a whitewash committee. And of course, uh, Chairman Bernanke said that this bill would make would uh, mean a takeover by Congress and threaten the financial system, dollar, and economy. So let me get this straight. The Fed prints trillions of dollars out of thin air, artificially lowers interest rates to increase poor and malinvestment of capital, and gives Americans the rope of cheap credit to hand themselves with. So who exactly is the threat to financial stability, and who is the one that has taken us over since 1913? Well, that's a very good question, Mel. It, just to ask the question is to answer it, that Bernanke is, uh, is uh, resorting to rhetoric, and there's no substance to what he's saying, unless what he's saying is that he doesn't want the Congress or anybody else, the public, to be thinking about what they're doing. You know, just to uh, to examine what they're doing in an audit uh, means that uh, people are thinking about what they're doing or that they yes. care about what they're doing and that there's going to be a report about what they're doing and that people are going to read the report about what they're doing and so forth. And the Fed does not want anybody to think about what they're doing. 
So I think that's what uh, the Bernanke statement is all about, and I don't think it really has an awful lot of substance. And also, we mustn't forget that these guys are, are masters at psychology, and uh, yes. it, it, it if they came up and said, yeah, we're all for an audit of the Fed, then people might say, oh, they get suspicious. But if they say, oh, no, we don't want the Fed to be audited, then that seems to strengthen the movement, doesn't it? Uh, you see, back in the early days, one of the things that I documented in the book was when they sold the Federal Reserve System to the American people. This is prior to the 1913 passage of the Federal Reserve Act. A lot of these bankers, the very people who were instrumental in creating the Federal Reserve legislation, went on public record as opposing it. They said, oh, this, this bill is going to be bad for America, it's going to be bad for business, and they did this primarily knowing that their, their words would be quoted in the press, and that the average gum-chewing public would say, hey, listen to this, Maud, uh, these bankers don't like the Federal Reserve Act very much, must be pretty good. Must be good. <laughs> must be good, yeah. So we, we cannot be blind to the possibility that that is the very game that Bernanke is playing today. I don't know that that's the case, but it's certainly a possibility. Very interesting. Now, Mr. Griffin, I heard this at another interview. In your book, there's an exchange published in Britain's Punch magazine going back to 1957. You featured it in the beginning of your book as an appropriate mental exercise to limber the mind of the material in the book. For example, it starts out with a question, what are banks for? Answer, to make money. Question, for the customers. No, for the banks. Why doesn't bank advertising mention this? It would not be in good taste. Why don't you explain this to our listeners as we remove the veil from the Federal Reserve secrecy? Oh, okay. Well, I'm glad you, you uh, focused on that. I threw that in as a, kind of a on a whim at the last minute. I had an extra page. You know, as you know, it's a big book as it is, and we filled up those pages. But I had one page that I, uh, well, page and a half, I said, you know, I, I had to put something meaningful up here. So I, I put that article, and then a lot of people have enjoyed it. Yes. Basically, all it is is it's a humorous way of causing uh, the reader to focus on the fact that banks are no different than any other business that they're there to make money, and that the people in those uh, banks are not necessarily any smarter or dumber, more virtuous or more criminal than any other business. They're just out there to make money. But they've surrounded themselves in this, uh, by this aura of great respectability and uh, complicated banker language. And that's all. And I wanted people to focus on the fact that the, the deal by which banks can create money out of nothing and collect interest on nothing is a, is a scam. That's all there is to it. And as you recall, at the end of that little article from Punch, it says, well, maybe I'd better go out and form myself a bank. <laughs> yes, yes. And I think a lot of people would come to that conclusion if they had no, no scruples. They'd say, well, heck, what the heck? This is the, best, uh, this is the best crime I could think of committing because it's legalized. This is not part of the uh, interview, but I just thought about a, uh, a website that cropped up a, a few years ago by the creators of eBay. You've probably heard of Prosper.com. Have you heard that? No, I haven't. Prosper.com is when people actually lend money based on an auction system. In other words, if you want $1,000, where other people are going to come in and say, I'll lend it to you for 10 ah, somebody I else guess. for 9 Yes, I am familiar with that now that you've explained it. I remember reading about that. Sounds like a great idea. It is, it is. But many say that the government of the people is no longer of the people, but of a few powerful people. Before the Fed was born in 1913, we had a lot of negative sentiment as it relates to monopolies, cartels, oil and money trust, 
yet this banking cartel was created. How did that happen? Well, it happened through deception. That's the bottom line. Uh, When you see what happened on Jekyll Island, which is where the Federal Reserve System was conceived at a secret meeting on Jekyll Island, which is why I call the book The Creature from Jekyll Island. Yes. When you examine what these people did there, and they wrote about it years later, so we get it directly from their own pens and from their own mouths. One of the things they had to do was figure out a way to make sure that the American people did not know that they were creating a banking monopoly or cartel. And they talked about that because they knew that the uh, Congress and the people at large were opposed to that. They didn't want to have uh, a system that was modeled after the one in Europe. And, of course, it was modeled directly after the Bank of England, which was the granddaddy of all of the central banks or the banking monopolies in the world. And so they said, well, what are we going to call this central bank other than a central bank so that the voters won't know that it's a central bank? And they said, oh, well, let's call it the Federal Reserve System. Nobody will know what that's all about. In other words, the answer to your question is that these highly intelligent, very wealthy and respectable men, very powerful men, sat around a table and figured out ways to deceive Congress and to deceive the American people. That's how it came about. Isn't it interesting? A few weeks ago, I saw somebody taking video in front of the Federal Reserve Building. And all of a sudden, a guard comes out and says, Sir, I'm sorry, but it's prohibited to take video in front of federal buildings. That is not a federal building, is it? No, it's not. It's not a federal building. Um, You got me there because maybe it's a federal building that's being leased to the Federal Reserve. But the real issue issue is, is the Federal Reserve a federal agency? And it is not. Well, the person who took the video did it with that purpose. He wanted to see if the guard would come out and say, this is a federal building. And he lectured the person who, of course, didn't know that the Federal Reserve, it's not federal, it's not a bank, and he has no money. Yeah. Well, the guard wouldn't know that. All he knows is he gets his paycheck every Friday afternoon. Exactly. (laughs) And that's it. Back then, there were controls to make sound financial decisions. But with the passage of the Federal Reserve Act, it was no longer necessary to practice caution. Do we have to worry if uh, you're guaranteed a bailout? Well, that's right. It was not only necessary, uh, I should say, not only not necessary to practice caution, but it became disadvantageous to practice caution because your competitors were not. And exactly. if you, uh, if you re, uh, tried to run your business in a sound, respectable, cautious manner, you couldn't keep up with your competition. So you'd go out of business. And so this, all this business of the FDIC and all the insurance guarantees and all the federal guarantees and regulations and controls supposedly to help the banking system actually destroyed it, among other things. Well, you know, in the insurance business, that's, that's, uh, that's looked upon as a moral hazard is the phrase they exactly. use. Uh, in other words, if, if there's some advantage for you taking added risk, then it's, uh, it's hazardous to the risk itself. And there is a moral advantage and a financial advantage for uh, the, the banks and the, all the lending institutions to take risk because they're, they're covered. They're, uh, they're covered by the taxpayer. I always find many parallels in some of the systems that we currently have in place. We have to avoid winning the war, otherwise the hardship imposed by the state would no longer seem reasonable to its subjects. Translation, no war equals no profits for the war profiteers. We can say the same about disease. Pharmaceutical companies have to avoid finding a cure, or they may cease to exist. They treat the symptoms, but not the cure. The war on drugs 
Catherine Austin Fitz had a discussion with me a few weeks ago. This is the most effective war ever fought. Those who fight control the competition and keep the monopoly going. And we can go on and on and on. How can we escape from this vicious cycle? Well, the first step is to understand that we're in the vicious cycle. What you just said, uh, I, I totally agree with, Mel. But as you were saying it, I was wondering how many people out there in la-la land, hearing those words, would agree with it. And maybe your listeners are pretty well informed, but I'll bet if you just conducted a poll up and down the street where I live, <laughs> uh, you would find out that 80 to 90 percent of the people did not agree with that. They would say that was much too harsh, that was an extreme statement, and it wasn't true. So yes. how are they going to get out of that? They don't even know they're in it. So the first step is to awaken our fellow citizens to the reality of it. And that's the reason we're doing what we're doing. Now, let's go back in history. There's a myth that the Fed was created supposedly as a result of the bank panic of 1907. However, since its inception, we have seen more frequent recessions, a depression, stock market crashes, and more importantly, and I think this is crucial for our listeners to understand, the dollar has lost over 90% of its purchasing power. Do you also believe the cancellation of Bretton Woods by Nixon had something to do with this? And how would our economy be if we were backing our money with gold now? Also, you mentioned there were public goals and undisclosed goals. Please explain. Okay, a lot of issues tied up in that question, Mel. But I think the underlying thread is what would happen if we had a banking system that was treated like any other business? Yes. In other words, it didn't have all of these guarantees, protections, controls, knobs, switches, and meters all connected to politics so that the politicians and the bankers were manipulating the credit and the supply of money and all of that stuff. What, what if we just took all that away and went back to a free system where free enterprise was allowed to determine these things and where the criminals went to prison instead of getting uh, bailed out uh, uh, those who make bad business decisions they go to, to go into bankruptcy and they live in smaller houses than they used to instead of getting huge billion dollar payoffs from the taxpayer what would happen if we get rid of all of that that's how i see the question and i would say that if we did that there'd be a lot of people who now are regarded as uh, successful financiers who would be uh, sharing the same building with uh, Bernie Madoff. Uh, right. They'd, they'd be in prison because they would be doing things which, uh, if, if not legally uh, a crime, because they've all been protected by the laws now, but they certainly, it would be uh, ethically a crime what they've done. They've, they've defrauded the public. They've, they've committed a fraud and they've stolen money from hardworking people. And then I think that. Um, the average person would suddenly wake up and say, wait a minute, I can't rely on uh, these experts and these politicians and these pundits to take care of me and to tell me what is a safe investment and so forth. I better look after this myself. If before I put money into a bank, I better check it out and see, what's this bank record been? Have they, do they have a lot of complaints? I might even go on to Google and search it and see what people are saying about it. In other words, right. uh, I think if people would spend as much time examining their bank as they, uh, as they spend examining a used car that they're about to buy, uh, you know, and the banks were uh, allowed to fail if they, uh, if they conducted uh, their business in an inappropriate manner. I think all of it, not all, 99% of the major problems we're seeing financially in the world today would disappear. Would there be some hardship? Of course. Would people get hurt? Yes. 
but it, out of that would be a process where people would then learn that they have to be responsible for themselves. And down the line, we would have a much more sound system where people would not be hurt, or at least the numbers would be much smaller. As it is now, everybody is hurt. And, uh, you know, people don't realize that uh, just because their bank account is now insured for, what is it, 200000 or $250,000, they don't realize that in their lifetime, they're going to have more than that much money stolen from them through inflation in order to bring exactly. that scam about. So they're not gaining anything. They're just looking only at one part of the equation instead of the, all the parts along the line. And this is such a crucial invisible tax that so many people don't understand. I go to social gatherings all the time and people say, well, taxes are not that high in the United States. But when you see that inflation just erodes your savings, your earnings, then people get it. Yeah, they have to really think about it. They don't realize that it takes a dollar today. Uh, well, I shouldn't call it a dollar. It takes one Federal Reserve note, they call it there a you dollar, go. Uh, to purchase what could have been purchased for three cents back in 1913. In other words, 97% of our money, our savings, everything invested in, denominated in terms of dollars, 97% of that has been stolen from the American people, and they don't even know it. So, yeah, they're just looking at taxes, they're looking at what they've got left over, and, you know, everything looks pretty good, and so they don't want to think about these things, and they certainly don't have any idea of what to do about it, so they just sort of yawn and continue. People believe that bailouts are something new. When we've had those extensions of the Fed for quite some time, the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund, the IMF. By the way, according to some sources, the World Bank is moving to Kazakhstan. Have you heard about that? No, I have not heard about that. It doesn't sound logical, but <laughs> who knows? <laughs> I just I know. heard a few weeks ago that the next uh, capital of money was going to be Kazakhstan. It makes no sense in a way, but you never know. You never know. Uh, it, it, the location is not the important thing. It's what they do wherever they are. And uh, I, my guess would be it's going to remain in, uh, in Switzerland with the Bank of International Settlements. But then, you know, it could go to New York with the... Um, with the IMF or the World Bank, who knows? They're working on that as we speak, by the way. That's one of the issues that the, these uh, guys at the top of the financial world are discussing as we speak. You mentioned location is irrelevant. Somebody emailed a couple of weeks ago a picture of a huge United States embassy, and it's the second largest one after the one we have under construction in Baghdad. And it was in El Salvador, which is one of the poorest countries in the hemisphere. Why would such a big embassy be necessary in this part of the world? Well, you know, I don't really think I can answer that question definitively, but I generically I think that the the people who are making these decisions in our own government are looking to the next stage. They're not looking to that embassy being necessarily uh, an outpost for the United States, but merely a, a, an integral part of a new world order, a global mm-hmm. system. And they need to have those outposts in all of the major continents. And, and that's, in my view, that's probably what they're looking at, not just for a U.S. embassy in uh, El Salvador. Right. Let's talk about gold for a moment. It seems that the Fed is not happy about the supremacy of gold. Most bankers own it, but they don't want you to. Isn't it obvious that the main reason is that gold gives us more value than the current fiat system that we have where we can print money with nothing to back it up? 
Well, my answer might be a little different from that, although the, the gist of what you're saying I certainly agree with, but it, I don't think gold gives us value. It preserves value. Uh, it, the reason the international bankers hate gold is because it reveals how worthless their currencies are by comparison. Yes. It's, it's a yardstick. It's a right. measurement. It's something to stand next to it. And, and they really, they don't look good when they're standing next to gold. And so they want to get rid of it. I don't know. It'd be like, you know, the, the, uh, the, ugly, um, the ugly sisters and uh, Cinderella. Yes. Know, they don't want to go to the ball together. The ugly sisters want Cinderella out of there. <laughs> right. Good analogy. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, that's how I, that's how I look at it. Now, bankers are wherever profit is to be made, and they finance both sides of a conflict. And we always talk about this on the show. The wars of the 19th and 20th century, and I'm willing to bet even the current wars are financed on both sides. Why profit from one half when you can profit from both, and your hope is for the war to never end, right? Please tell us more of the role bankers have played in financing wars and revolutions. Well, Throughout uh, what we may call modern history, by that I mean the last uh, maybe three or four hundred years, uh, the role of uh, the banks in financing wars has been undeniably strong. And probably, at least in my view, but probably in many uh, historians' view, it may be the dominant factor in enabling a war to even be fought. Because wars are expensive, obviously, that needs to go doesn't even need to be said but uh before before money was created through the banking system when it was just in the form of uh, gold coins or silver coins um then the degree to which an empire could fight a war was the same degree to which they could go out and collect those gold coins and silver coins it was limited i mean you had to really go out and collect them you had to send your men out, and you had to knock on every door, and you'd have to threaten these people and so forth and ransack their houses and maybe kill a few people to get uh, get your gold and your silver, collect your taxes, and uh, then you could theoretically fight a war. Well, when they finally invented the paper money and then the banking system where they had receipts and became checks and so forth, then it was possible to create paper money and just simply push it out there uh, in larger and larger quantities. And you wouldn't have to go collect the silver or the gold at all as long as you just forced everybody to take your paper money and so forth. So what I'm trying to say is that with the evolution of, of paper money and banking as the final step and the issuance of checkbook money, now it, it became possible for kingdoms and empires to raise much, much more money from their citizens than they ever could before, and they didn't even have to send their soldiers out to find where the money was hidden. All they had to do was just push paper money into the system and require that everybody accept it at face value, and then this would result in inflation, and that means that every the prices would go up and so forth. Uh, it's, it's a long and interesting mechanism, which I talk about in my book, but this is why banking has become a central force in the ability to conduct modern wars. So the the bankers who were in the middle of all of this certainly uh, looked at this as a, as a most interesting development. I'm not saying that they consciously or 
personally said, let's go have a good war so we could make some money. But I am saying that they realized soon that having wars was profitable and that uh, if they could loan this gold or silver to the king, uh, that you know they could extract just about any kind of profit rate they wanted because the king didn't have to pay it himself. He'd just go inflate, you know, inflate the currency or whatever, and and uh, he, he could always repay it. And I'm I'm rambling a little bit, but I'm what I'm saying, trying to conclude here is that without the modern banking system and the ability to to create money literally out of nothing to finance wars, I think that most of the wars of modern history would have not have been fought, or if they had been fought, they would have been much shorter in duration. And out of that, the banking systems have profited uh, from both sides of most wars. Wasn't it ironic to see President George W. Bush speak in front of the Israeli Knesset? When his own grandfather, Prescott Bush, funded Hitler and the Nazi machine for almost 20 years. Here's a prime example of someone dealing with both sides of war. Well, yes, yeah, certainly. And, uh, of course, I don't think we should, uh, we should blame uh, George Bush for his grandfather. But nevertheless, it is ironic. Uh, certainly, uh, Bush Jr. has never repudiated his grandfather's uh, work. So I guess we have to assume that he, he's quite proud of it. Exactly. With the trillions of dollars for the bailout, something's got to give. Do you foresee inflation or deflation ahead? Well, the short answer is I see inflation ahead. But obviously, we are in uh, a deflationary period in some sectors of the economy right now. And I think that we may even see more deflation in those sectors temporarily. What are those sectors? Those are what I call the bubble sectors, the, the parts of the economy that were already inflated. Inflated. Oh, okay. so far beyond any realistic value. I'm talking about the housing market and the stock market. Yes. Uh, they were uh, huge bubbles. And so when the bubbles burst and the air starts rushing out, and nobody's quite sure how far down the bubble will go before it finally hits the contour of where it's supposed to be. We don't know. Uh, I personally feel that uh, both the stock market and the real estate market have some more air to let out, uh, but I don't know. But aside from the bubble sectors, the rest of the economy is uh, is hurting. As uh, money goes out of existence, values in home mortgages goes down, um, people are losing their jobs, they're spending what little savings they have, and so forth. So the total amount of money in the system uh, is going out of existence, or a lot of it is going out of existence. At the same time, these huge trillions are coming into existence at the top. You might visualize this somewhat like a big bucket of water. Uh, yes. Here we've, we've got to holes in the bottom of the bucket where people are losing money uh, from their savings and their homes and all of that sort of thing. is going out of existence, just disappearing. But at the same time, there are trillions coming into the top of the bucket being poured in by Congress and the Federal Reserve. And so the total quantity of money, aside from the bubbles we discussed, is remaining relatively constant which means that inflation is not really that noticeable as compared to maybe a year ago. Uh, or in some areas, it's actually going down. We've got deflation. But now notice that even though the total quantity of money may remain fairly constant for a while, the holes are getting larger by the day, but even though the quantity remains constant, notice that the ones losing the money out of the bottom of the bucket are the middle class 
Those yes. are the people losing their savings and their home values. The ones getting the money at the top of the bucket are the politically favored class, the financiers, the banks, the insurance companies, the, uh, the large corporations, those with tremendous political pull. So what is happening is that although the quantity of money may temporarily remain fairly constant, it's being redistributed. Money is moving from the middle class up to the politically favored class, and this is a great redistribution of wealth happening before our very eyes. In the long run, I think the process has no place to go but to inflation because the holes are getting bigger at the bottom, and these guys in Washington and at the Fed only have one trick, and that's to create more money. And they are resolved, as long as we allow them to remain in power, they are resolved to continue to play that trick over and over and over again. They'll just create more money, more money, and it makes no difference. There is no ceiling whatsoever as to the amount of money they are prepared to create, which means they'll just inflate the system out of existence. I'm so glad you clarified the bucket analogy, because when you were saying it first, I saw the common man or woman carrying the bucket and the holes with water pouring down, but no water coming in. I was going to ask, who is actually getting the water? Where is the bailout money, by the way? Well, that's one of the things they'll be trying to find out uh, with this Audit the Fed program, but we can pretty much, we know where the money Speculate. is. Speculate. I've speculated, went into the... Uh, uh, and to the credit uh, balance sheets of the banks that got these awards. And it went into salaries, it went into bonuses, it went into retirement plans, it went into office rent, utilities, and so forth. And it build, it's building back up the reserves of the banks. See, they're, they're writing a lot of bad debts off of their books. So now they're writing back in reserves or credits onto their books. So they're, what they're, my opinion is they're just rebuilding the uh, balance sheets of these institutions so that the that it looks better on paper and um but they're not lending it very much of it to the to the consumer i was just going to say to the common man or woman when they were watching tv say and listening to henry yeah. paulson mm-hmm. and when he was threatening that if we don't get the bailout this country would be gone basically it's threatening fear-mongering so if that's the case then what are we supposed to do to reverse the trend Well, we can't do anything to reverse the trend because the people who make the decisions uh, are the ones who are destroying the system. Uh, We have to replace those people. We can sit here and say, well, what we would do if we were there, but we're not there. They're in total control. We're just out here trying to figure out what's going on, and that's the big step. And then what should go on is another big step. But none of that makes any difference because the people who are making the decisions and making the wheels turn have a totally different agenda. And so all we can do, really, is first understand that this is a mess, and then we have to get busy and replace those people with other individuals and replace Congress almost to a man. There are a few good men there, but not many. Replace the Senate and get these uh, get uh, new uh, thinking, new uh, purebred Americans, you might say, with, a, with principles in there instead of this, this predator class, this criminal class that has gravitated into government. And until we do that, until we do that, we're, nothing is going to change. I had a guest a few weeks ago who said that the devil has higher approval rating than our Congress. But who has? The, the devil. The devil. Well, what's the difference? <laughs> <laughs> I don't understand. <laughs> Mr. Griffin, our founding fathers, through the Constitution, knew 
that we could not have a system that would create hyperinflation based on what they went through during the Revolutionary War. Why have we separated ourselves from those principles and virtually used our Constitution as disposable paper, not to use another term? Well, I think we've done that because we didn't know what those principles were. We were carefully protected from learning about them by uh, our government-operated school system. It certainly applies to me. Everything that, I, that I've learned about the Constitution and about our founding fathers' uh, uh, dread of inflation and, and using money in, as we're now using it, all of those things, I was not taught that in school. I had to do my own independent research later and when I became concerned about these issues and had to figure out what the heck is going on. Ever since uh, the turn of the last century, when the public educational system was sort of taken over by people who have an agenda, uh, their their agenda was to build a collectivist system in this country and around the world, and to globalize it and merge it all into what they now finally call a new world order. That all happened at the turn of the last century, and tremendous funding started to come from the tax-exempt foundations like the Carnegie Endowment Fund and the Rockefeller Funds and the Ford Foundation, and all of these huge uh, tax-exempt foundations started to fund textbooks and grants to universities and setting up the the uh, heads of various uh, history departments and funding the way history would be taught. Uh, all of this is well-documented, but I didn't know anything about that because I became the product of the system itself that was taken over. So to answer your question, we let it happen because we didn't know it was happening. We were carefully protected from any knowledge of what our founding fathers thought on these issues. I remember back uh, when I was a sophomore in college, I had an economy professor who, of course, explained the Fed his own way. He was a banker, explained how banks create money and so on. And I always had questions for him that he could not answer. Why is it that a book like yours is not in the universities? A book like mine? Yes. Oh, well, um, I don't know what he would say for that. He probably would say, well, a book like that was garbage and it shouldn't be in a university. But um, the truth of the matter is that my book is in a lot of universities, uh, I'm happy to say. Uh, it, Good. And yeah, actually, I'm, I'm amazed because every once in a while I'll see the orders come through here and uh, my staff will say, oh, hey, Ed, you ought to take a look at this one. The University of Michigan just yes. bought another copy or whatever. And of course, we always get a big thrill when one of the branches of the Federal Reserve System buys a copy. Really? <laughs> <laughs> I get a big kick out of that. <laughs> exactly. My brother, who's a professor at a university, was not familiar with your, your work. I pointed him to, to your book and he's going to have uh, mandatory almost to his to his economy class to, for them to read it. Yeah, we do have a lot of teachers uh, at at the high school and college level who are making the book uh, yeah definitely uh, reading um, mandatory and part of the curricula. But it's certainly they're on thin ice because uh, a lot of the um, departments that they work in would not approve of that. So anyway, I I really appreciate their courage and. Uh, and their dedication to principle. And I understand that the, the students are getting a lot out of it. They're not getting any flack at all from the students, but they're worried about the, you know, the department heads. Isn't that a threat to academia uh, when you put a book like yours to actually reveal the truth? Well, yes, I, I suppose. But, you know, 
I guess today I'm feeling very generous. Had we discussed this yesterday, I probably would have been more harsh because I was more depressed yesterday. But today I'm feeling generous. I'm going to say that probably a lot of these guys are just not informed themselves. And once they get informed, they'll probably change their views. Well, yes. yesterday I would have said these guys are hopelessly brainwashed and they're part of the problem. Maybe the truth lies somewhere in the middle. I think you're right. I think the truth is that most of these have been influenced, acclimated, inculcated by the establishment and the power structure to follow the the system, the matrix. And, you know, I can understand that. They want, to, they want to go into academia, and so they want to get good grades, they want to study, and they have to do, uh, they, ha they have to study the books they're given. And first thing you know, they read all this stuff, and everybody else seems to agree with them. It, it's a pretty unusual person that can buck that trend and, and go the other way. When you wrote your book, our deficits were high. But I bet you may not have speculated they would be as high as they are today. I always say that Slavery was not really abolished. It was transformed into the nine-to-five matrix. With the never-ending deficits, how can we really go back to sound fiscal monetary policy short of abolishing the Federal Reserve? No, we must abolish the Federal Reserve. That uh, has to be done if we're ever going to get back to fiscal monetary policy. Because as long as the Federal Reserve exists, either whether it exists in the control of the private banking industry, or even if we just turn it over to to the treasury and 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 tr trust those nice intelligent trustworthy uh, politicians to run it uh you know no it, it's not who's running it it's not whether it's a government agency or a private banking institution those are interesting questions but not the important question the important question is what does it do and what it does it's a it's a Uh, a central bank, that's the name they give it, which means that it creates money out of nothing. It's the institutionalization of fractional reserve banking, uh, and it uh, just creates money in the name of the country, and the politicians can create any amount of it for any purpose. They still talk about taxes and all of that, but they know that the ace up the sleeve is they can generate any amount of revenue for any purpose at any time simply by creating money out of nothing. And as long as that mechanism is in place, then there's no way in, in, uh, in this world to return to a sound monetary system. So the Fed has to be abolished as step number one. I believe it was one of the Rothschilds who said... Let me issue and control a nation's money, and I care not who makes its laws. Do we really believe that our government has the power to control when the Federal Reserve actually oversees what they do, in essence? I suppose he probably did say that. I'm sure he thought it, although I've never been able to find an uh, a thought authentic source for it from him. But anyway, it's widely quoted, and, and the issue is not whether he actually said it, but it's true. <laughs> Who, he who controls the nation's money controls the nation. And uh, now the question is, uh, do people really believe that the government is independent of those who control the money? Well, they do because they think the government controls the money. They don't realize that it's the banks, that, that the private institutions behind it. Um, that's why I think it's important to, to read a book like mine, The Creature from Jekyll Island, or others. There are a lot of good ones out there. Some of them may be a lot simpler to get through. But to come to the realization that the government doesn't control the Federal Reserve System, it's more the other way around. 
Exactly. The banks in the Federal Reserve System and the powers they represent control the government. And once people get that picture, then their worldview of politics is changed forever. And people believe that the federal taxes that they pay go into paying for the roads and they go to paying all the government services and they don't know that it actually goes into paying hello? the hello can you hear me there can you hear me hello i think i've hello? lost contact hello let me call you right back uh oh hello good afternoon mr griffin's office hello john it's mel back in the line okay mel hold on please hello mr griffin yes i must admit the only times this has ever happened in our show yeah. has been when there's a controversial subject taking place. Otherwise, we never get disconnected. So just wanted you to let to know that. Okay. Must be some connection, huh? Thank you very much for listening. We're going to talk more with our special guest in our members section. Head on over to our website, veritasshow.com. Click on subscribe and join us in the members area to tune in to the second part of this great show. We'll take a short break, listen to some music, and we'll be right back with more.
This is Ralph Epperson, and you are listening to The Veritas Show.